What's up, Beardos? This is J.L. Fields, and you're listening to episode 159 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't answer the question first. I'm not answering the question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beard. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com, and you can always reach us by emailing thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating and then spend the rest of the time answering listener questions, including whether or not the passing of Prop 12 is a victory for animals. That's right. So we are going to be answering listener-submitted emails, but we're also going to be answering your audience questions because we are live at the Atlanta Veg Fest. <laughs> that, that went well. <laughs> so, Paul... Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in Atlanta for like a day or two. Unfortunately, you have not had such an easy time. Yes, I've been here for about <laughs> five hours. Got in at 3.30 last night. And it, I I feel like I'm living a, a Disney teen drama right now. And, and like I was mean to a witch at some point And she has <laughs> cursed me to have bad luck. And... I'm going to learn some life lesson, but I don't know what that is yet. Well, the life lesson you learned last night is that hotels can run out of keys. Yes. I had to wake up Andy at 3.30 in the morning, <laughs> pounding on his uh, on the door to let me in. But yes, so I have not had a chance to enjoy Atlanta yet, but hopefully I will later. Someday in the future. Someday <laughs> yeah. in the future. So, well, I'm glad you made it, Paul. Um, these events are fun because we get to like interact with everybody. And we did this great event in Chicago recently with Vegan Warrior Princess's Attack, and it was all like Q&A, all listener emails. And we found that was like way more fun than us trying to plan out a specific like lesson to teach or anything like that. So that's what we're going to do today. We have a couple emails picked out that we think will be fruitful discussions, then we'll turn it over to everybody else. Um, but... We are going to be joined by a special guest to to do that because that's one of the fun things about these events is there's so many amazing speakers and we get to convince them to come on to our humble little podcast. So let's get her out here. You know her as the author of The Vegan Air Fryer and Vegan Pressure Cooking and the host of Easy Vegan with JL Fields. Please welcome JL Fields. Hey, JL. Hi, you guys. So, Jail, I understand you launched the new book yesterday. I did. So tell us a little bit about that. Oh, that's so exciting. Thanks for paying attention. Um, <laughs> social media works. Uh, I My next book that's coming out in December is called Vegan Meal Prep. So people who've been following me for a while know that I make boring beans and grains on the weekends and then just eat them all week. So I decided to start putting them together in meals and jars and containers and to walk you through it. So on a Saturday or Sunday, you can cook and have all your food and containers and jars ready to roll all week long. Awesome. Yeah. So that just launched on Amazon. Yeah, it uh, comes out on December 18th. So we just announced it yesterday. Pre-orderies. Yeah. Pre-ordering now. Yeah. Do the thing. Jail, last night I introduced you to the world of escape rooms. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was so amazing. I love you and curse you. <laughs> have, any, have you guys been to an escape room? Who has never been to one? And is it because you're like, oh, my gosh, it's so scary or weird? It's so amazing. Um, I was the weakest link. 
No. Um, I would just kind of run around and I'm like, there's a clue somewhere. There's a clue somewhere. And Andy's like, yeah, I have all five of them in my pocket right now. Um, but it was really fun. I'm doing that because I'm trying to indoctrinate everyone to want to do escape rooms. Yeah. And that's why I'm using the podcast to do that so that like it's out in the world. If I'm coming through your place, yeah. your town, hit me up and we will do an escape room. I will do the research. I did yes. the research. Yes. So anyway, now that that's out of the way. Wait, can we just have a business moment? Vegan escape room. People, if you're looking for a business, I want vegan themes. All the animals are happy. Give us vegan drinks and food when we're done and photos. You've got something going on here. You're welcome. Do it. Okay, go ahead. All right. Okay, let's get back to our regularly scheduled program. Uh, Paul. Yes, Andy. You know what we have to do before we talk about anything serious? Got to talk about that food. We do. So have you been eating anything good in Atlanta? <laughs> Actually, nothing in Atlanta. I've had a bottle of Soylent, <laughs> and I've had like the nuts and seeds that were given in our goodie bag. That sounds like demeaning, but it was actually delicious and wonderful treat. But uh, my friends at uh, Farm of the Free took me to The Grit in Athens, Georgia. Anyone been there? Um, I had just been eating like all this uh, really heavy fried stuff, which I love, but... I was told the grit had these delicious bowls, and specifically this golden bowl. I'm a huge fan of anything nooch covered, and the golden bowl is just that. It's like a big bowl of nooch breaded tofu rice veggies, and you can get a gravy made out of nooch. It's just like nooch and water like mixed together, and you can pour it over your thing. So that's my food recommendation for Atlanta so far, and I'm looking forward to trying anything out there at the fest. Did you try anything while you're here? Uh, well, I just arrived last night. And so I ate at the hotel bar. So, you know, the standard hummus uh, <laughs> over and lovely side salad. And I'm li like literally not being snarky. It was quite delicious. But I am looking forward to eating my way through Atlanta before I leave tomorrow. Very nice. All right. So let's get into these emails. So we've picked out two to go into. So I'm going to get read this one from Nicole O, who actually emailed us from Scotland. And it's a little lengthy, so I'll try not to mess it up, trip it up. <laughs> <laughs> One take. All right. I'm coming to you with a big question that has been weighing on my mind recently. I know that you've discussed the plastic problem before, particularly regarding the ableism surrounding it, but I've been thinking about the deeper link between veganism and the plastic-free movement, and so I pose this question for discussion to you. Do you think that as environmentally conscious vegans, we should be taking the lead on the plastic problem? Although plastic free and vegan are two completely different movements, I can't help but feel they are intrinsically linked and cannot be looked at in isolation. The link is clear when it comes to fishing. Almost 50% of all Ostin plastic being attributed to this industry means that as vegans, we are actively choosing not to support not only the mass killing of fish for consumption, but also the plastic biowaste created by the activity, which goes on to cause further harm. But what about excessive consumption of plastic leading to the harm and death of other animals? Birds, for example, who might mistake plastic for food and inadvertently feed it to their young, causing them to become so weighed down they are unable to fly and so meet a miserable and preventable death. This is a plastic issue, but it is also a vegan issue. Can we look at plastic in isolation when we know the damage it causes goes further beyond its environmental impact? Animals at all levels, right up to those in the most remote areas of the world, are becoming affected by our plastic obsession. Can we really be vegan without being advocates for a plastic-free lifestyle? So we've had questions like this on the show before that are kind of like, can we truly be vegan if we eat palm oil or whatever it might be? It, can we wrap that up in veganism or does that make it too complicated? So I figured this would be a good question because, JL, you are the host of Easy Vegan. And I feel like a lot of people might say that, well, if we sort of put some sort of plastic requirement into veganism, whatever it might be, that that maybe makes veganism less 
easy? Mm-hmm. Um, or does this make total sense? Like this is something that by extension of our use causes harm to animals and therefore it should be very much a part of veganism. So I'm going to pass it to you first. And like, what do you think about that? Can we truly be vegan if we're not advocating against plastic? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. And I actually, I'm a, Andy and Paul know I'm a, a huge, I'm a listener of their show. I'm a listener of the Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack. And I approach things very differently. It doesn't mean I don't agree with a lot of uh, things. So I'm just going to start by my first instinct when I read this, and it's probably because I deal with so many snarky people on on social media, is um, there is no vegan card, so no one can take one away from you. Um, and so I'm just putting that out there right now. So then to follow up to say, I get worried when we start to pull in other issues that, um, could give permission for people to think differently about veganism where it's not animal centered to, because to me, veganism is animal centered. And I think there are a lot of things that we do in the world that have an impact on animals. Um, whether it's driving car, being on a plane, flying here today. I mean, did birds die as a result of me flying here yesterday? Am I less vegan? I don't know. I think the plastic problem is legitimate. And I also think it's a great opportunity to bring environmental activists into this so that they can start to, in the same way that we often say people come to veganism and then they get introduced, they come to veganism for the animals and then may realize that some people might experience better health. Some people um, will then also make that connection between the environment. So now they're working on all of those. And I'd like to think that could happen from the environment perspective. But um, I am not taking up plastic in my own personal activism, other than I travel with this everywhere. It's been many, many places. So that that's just gonna be my general first response. All right, so my my first response is that what this reminds me of is how if, if the entire world went vegan overnight tonight, we would still have issues with how we farm with like monocropping and stuff like that. I don't know if that's a term, I just maybe made that up, but um, we would still have issues that we would need to work on in terms of our environmental impact so to me, this falls under that. It's almost like we're we're doing this thing that just just by being vegan, we're then not supporting the the fishing industry, and so we are doing something about it. Not to say that there's not more that we can do about it, but I think that that might be the case for a lot of different issues, especially with the environment. That just being vegan isn't necessarily going to solve the environmental issues. It's going to be a step towards it, and we should keep taking more steps towards that. But I don't know if we need to make that like tie that into the original cause. It, uh, to me, it should be something where it's like, oh, cool, I'm like this, and then I'm also going to try not to use plastic, and I'm going to try not to do these things, but I don't necessarily know if it's something we should hit people with in tied in with veganism. Yeah, when I think about this issue, I kind of think about a lot of discussions we've had about how maybe we're looking at veganism in the wrong way if we're looking at it as like a specific set of rules that we have to achieve and that like we always try to advocate that it's that like yes of course there are certain things that if you're vegan you're you're likely doing and probably doing and avoiding um but more so it should be like this mindset of continuous improvement as you always like to say paul yeah. and and so it I don't think that like we should be dismissive of the plastic issue for a number of reasons but I think especially because it can harm other animals um and I guess my usual aside about caring about the environment like my personal position is the only reason to care about the environment is because it affects sentient beings i don't think the the environment in and of itself is 
uh, like people just think about it as it's like a good general thing to care about is the environment. But a lot of people don't think about, well, why do we care about the environment? I think it's because it supports the life of those that can feel pain and joy and suffer and all of that stuff. Um, so I think that trying to do these things where we're like, okay, you can't be vegan unless you're working on this one specific issue. I think that that, that will push people away from this, but I also think that it sort of boxes veganism into a specific set of rules that, you know, we, we you know, we think of vegans as doing one specific thing, but as we tease out on the show all the time, there's, there's nuances and there's little gray areas that some person might say you eat palm oil and therefore you're not vegan, or you do this and therefore you're not vegan. But you're like, well, I don't feel less vegan. I feel like I'm still trying and working on doing these things. So I feel like it should be something that we're concerned about. I think we should advocate for it, but I don't think that it should necessarily be something that is intrinsic, intrinsically a part of the platform of veganism. Like I think advocating for it as, as Callie Nicole from Vegan Warrior Princesses would say is practicing veganism, which means there's not a finish line. There's not a, okay, I don't eat eggs or dairy or meat. And I also don't use plastic and I specifically uh, advocate against it. And that crosses me across this, gets me across this finish line. And now all of a sudden I am vegan. I think that's the wrong way to look at it because there's always something more for us to do. And so I think it should be something that we're aware of, but I don't think it should be part of like the elevator pitch of veganism when you're trying to get someone on board. And I think sometimes people, um, you know, I think a lot of us have different things we're really passionate about, right? And some of it um, is veganism, but it, there could be other things. And I think sometimes people want to try to pull them all together because it works for them without realizing it might be the obstacle for others. I think about right now there's a big, you hear a lot um, that yoga is vegan, is vegan. Um, and then there are a lot of people, um, vegans and yogis, who will say, not necessarily if you really drill down backwards to what ahisma means, but I think it's because enthusiastic vegan yogis want that to be, and it makes sense. But then did we just make someone, someone's like, well, I don't do yoga, so I can't be a vegan. So did we just lose someone that way? Or, you know, so I just think it's, I think it's our natural inclination to want everything to be wrapped up in a bow to say, since this is where I'm coming from, I think that I want everybody else to come that way too. And I don't think we invite more people in. We potentially um, actually deter them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is certainly a very important issue, but I think it, it opens up for a, like a big rabbit hole of saying of the like you were saying with the plane like okay so now should I think about that or driving cars and it's all stuff that we should be thinking about but in the world in the current world that we live in it would be impossible to eliminate for it would be impossible for the majority of people to eliminate all of those things yeah and actually I think to to go back to something you were saying which was like in in a vegan world if everyone went vegan we would still have environmental issues to work on um, I also think that in a vegan world, if everyone did sort of hold animals to the, the the ethical and moral regard that veganism should, that that there would be a lot of people dedicated to working on solutions to the plastic problem. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be one of those people. It's like everyone goes vegan and everything fixes itself and it's fine. But I also think that a lot of like the issues that we're looking at, like animals killed in crops, are things that would begin to get worked on and taken more seriously if there was like a global mind shift, mindset shift towards valuing the lives of animals. And obviously that is a massive undertaking and that's not going to happen overnight. Um, but I guess, yeah, I guess it just, I just come down that like we should care about plastic, but not necessarily because we're vegan. We should care about plastic because we should care about plastic because it's causing harm to others. 
which some might say that is an intrinsic part of veganism, but I feel like it doesn't have to be one in the same. And it's okay for to care about multiple things and not have all of them have the root of it be veganism. Yeah. Should we move on to the second one? Let's do it. All right. So this is an email from Justine K from San Diego. Hey, Beardos. I'm sure you've heard about the passage of Prop 12 in California during the midterm elections. I'm wondering if you feel like this is something to celebrate or will it just make people feel okay about eating animals? And if you would have voted for it, were you a California resident? All right. So this is, I think this is going to be fun to talk about. Uh, we got a lot of emails about this. So um, has everyone heard about Prop 12 out there? Most people nodding their heads. So for anyone that's not familiar, Prop 12, something that just passed in the midterm elections, described by Ballotpedia, Prop 12 would establish minimum space requirements based on square feet for calves raised for veal, breeding pigs and egg-laying hens, and ban the sale of veal for, from calves, pork from breeding pigs, and eggs from hens where the animals were confined to areas below minimum square feet requirements. And it would mean that chickens would be required to have one square foot of space by the end of 2019 and by the end of or by the beginning of 2022 they would have to be entirely cage free with accommodations for scratching posts nests and perches and also it's kind of interestingly is that this ballot means that things sold in california also had to meet these requirements regardless of whether they are produced in california or not which is something we've talked about before in, in california in uh, massachusetts there was like a, an egg free provision that meant that if you want to sell your eggs here they must be cage free I said egg-free, but I meant egg -free. cage free. <laughs> uh, that they must be cage-free. And we thought that was kind of interesting because that, you know, Massachusetts is not a huge egg-producing state, but it's sort of this like backdoor loophole into getting other states that would probably never pass a cage-free initiative to do so. So like, why does this matter? Um, Two-thirds of all the chickens in California prior to this being passed were caged. And it did pass with 61% of the vote, which is... I feel like in a world where everything's like 49.5 to 50.5, that's like <laughs> kind of an overwhelming victory in that. And anyone listening to this might be thinking, didn't California already pass something that required cage-free? And the answer is sort of yes, and that's Prop 2, which passed in 20, 2008, went into effect in 2015. But as it turns out, the, the wording of that one was so vague that it was like really hard to actually enforce it, nor was there really any efforts to enforce it. So like the difference between Prop 2 and Prop 12, um, Prop 2 didn't specify requirements in terms, it was just like hens need to have the ability to extend their wings, but there was no actual requirement saying, well, for a hen to extend their wings, they need two feet of space or three feet of space or whatever it might be. So it was such like a vague victory that it never actually got like implemented. And that's why Prop 2 happened. So, uh, so now that we've sort of explained what that is, that it's essentially a, like a cage-free, gestation crate-free ballot initiative, we're going to talk about, is this good? Is this bad? Does this harm things? I know it's sort of the abolition versus welfare debate, but I think there's some, some interesting nuances to tease out there. So I don't know who wants to take it first, but Paul, like there's a few questions in here. Mm -hmm. uh, should we celebrate it? Should we make Facebook posts and be really happy about this? And then down the line, we can say, would we have voted for it if we were California residents? So my initial reaction, if, if we were in a vacuum and someone asked me, would I rather have would I rather have this or not have it? Like, would I rather have the the chickens and the pigs and the cow and the cows be in this confined space or not in the confined space? And that was it. Clearly, I would choose the, the not be in the confined space. But then my my other, but it's not in a vacuum, obviously, and we'll talk about that. And then my other initial reaction is that 
it started in with Prop Two in two thousand eight, and it's just passing now, a decade later. And I'm I'm thinking that's a really long time to get this passed through for something that I wouldn't personally be like, trying to get passed through. So I'm part of me is thinking, well, well, this is kind of I don't want to say a waste of time, but it, it took so long to get this thing that's really just you know it's just a little bit better, I guess. But then again, if if Prop 12 was something where it was like, okay, no, they're banning meat or they're doing something more aligned with what I would be fighting for, then I would be like, oh, a decade is, is no time at all in the grand scheme of things. So it's kind of like I'm being critical of the time that it took maybe because I'm not as favorable for it and not that I'm well attuned with law stuff, but like 10 years probably is not that long in terms of getting something like this passed and then implemented because it does seem like when these sorts of laws pass they still have you know five years or 10 years to actually implement them they don't just change everything overnight which i understand so maybe 10 years isn't that long for something like this to happen i don't know jail would you would do you celebrate prop 12 well i'm just going to go back to the is it long in colorado they legalized marijuana in november and you could buy it in january so <laughs> i'm just saying they're capable of acting a little bit faster than 10 years um that uh, so you know as i was listening to the question which is a good one and and obviously you know, so I'll just say, if I were in California, yeah, I would have voted for it because I would have. Um, I'm jumping to the second part first, um, because anything that's bringing attention to what's happening to animals, and and when I when I step back and look at what it says, I mean, ultimately, I think most of us here would say we don't want anyone to harm an animal ever, and the ultimate outcome is still going to be a violent death. But we're also talking about suffering when we talk about veganism. And so if an animal is going to, obviously going to suffer when it dies, but if it has the opportunity to suffer less, I can't, I can't really be opposed to that. Um, and it doesn't mean that I sanction that it's happening at all, but it means at least if we're going to continue this in our, our society, can we be, do as much as we can right now to, to eliminate suffering? So I know I know what Andy's going to say. He's going to say, "Well, sixty-one percent of people voted for this, and sixty-one. I would imagine sixty-one percent of people are not vegan in right. California. So the majority of those voters are people who do believe that eating meat yeah. is okay. Yeah. So does this does this actually get us closer to them thinking eating meat is not okay? I think it does. Like, look at um, look at the the clean meat movement that's going on right now. The lab mo meat movement. If you listen to Bruce Friedrich talk about the 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 search the research they're doing on marketing about how to talk to consumers about clean meat, they have no intention of putting lab meat, clean meat. Um, and when I say that, I mean I'm, it's quotes, right? Um, we're talking about meat that's been basically a cell in a lab, and it's you know so an animal didn't suffer in that moment. They're not putting that in the vegan section. They have no interest in the vegans or vegetarians buying it. What they're trying to find out is, and they talk to, to uh, consumer groups, and if they have two packages in front of them and the meat looks exactly the same, and by the way, the fat content will be exactly the same. Clean meat isn't going to be healthy meat. But one little sticker that says no animal was harmed in the making of this, they'll choose the one that no animal was harmed in the making of it. Because it's the exact same. It looks the exact same. So does that mean that they're vegan? No. But does that mean a lot of animals weren't consumed and abused as a result of someone saying, okay, I'd prefer that. I think that's a good thing. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think clean meat, or as they're now, the industry is now trying to call it cell-based meat, which I hate that term, <laughs> is like a different thing than advocating for like cage-free eggs. So I actually found that like, for instance, PETA, uh, not that we're huge fans of PETA, but they were like really opposing this bill, which I thought was kind of interesting. And there was a number of other animal rights organizations that were. And the position that they were taking, which is one that I also sort of fear for, is that doing things like this perhaps makes people more comfortable with exploiting animals. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, when I was touring around and doing a lot of college outreach, you know, I'd show people videos of what was happening in the agriculture system. And a lot of people, the response was like, well, this is horrible, but there's a better way to do it. And so that the struggle was getting people over that hump of saying, well, no, there's like no good way to exploit someone, like even in the most humane way, like I'm sure everyone in this room, we're probably all on board with the fact that humane meat is not like a thing that really exists. Right. Like there's no humane way to take the life of someone that doesn't want to die. And so if we do this, does it actually just make people more comfortable? Does it reinforce the idea that animals are ours to use as long as we treat them better? Mm -hmm which I feel like is a valid argument, but then I also wonder if it's just really childish to be like, things need to be as bad as possible for animals until they magically change overnight. So I don't, I don't really know where to come down on that. I think like what it means for me in practice is if I was in California and I was sitting there and the, the, that ballot was in front of me, I think I would vote yes. I, I think it would be really horrible for me to not vote yes on that. But would I spend a single second trying to convince anybody else to vote yes? Would I spend a second trying to get uh, signatures or get this passed? I don't think I would mm -hmm. because I think my time is best spent talking to people about why they should go vegan as opposed to why they should help animals or, or help animals by not hurting them quite as badly. If only someone had a shirt that said humane meat does not exist. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Hmm. Um, oh, what was I going to say? I was thinking of that joke and then I, I, <laughs> um, I think also, Andy, to go off of that, something that we've we've discussed before is is. Uh, OK, first, I agree with you. I, if this was in front of me, I would have also voted yes. But the reason that I don't think I would like you be going out trying to get signatures and stuff like that is is we've posed this question a lot, not that we've talked to people doing this, but we've just kind of threw it out in the air, is that we're, we're unsure of what the, the, the long-term plan is for something like this. Is it, is it that they're just going to keep passing laws and advocating for bigger and bigger cages until, poof, the cages disappear, and then there's just no more animal exploitation? It, it, it seems like at some point, you still need to get people to understand the fact that eating animals is, is wrong and they should not be doing that. Whether that's when the animals are in tiny cages or when they're cage free, you would still need to get them to go over that hump. And now maybe someone might argue if, if they're already at that place where they're free range or whatever, it would be easier to get them to, to, to um, understand that. But I'm not so sure about that. I think it's harder. I think that when I meet people who go out of their way to purchase meat from Whole Foods, they are harder to have that conversation with than someone that has never thought about this issue before. Like someone that's just like, I buy whatever is in front of me. I go to any restaurant and I buy it and I don't think about it. When you expose them to what's happening to animals, they're affected by it. But if you go to someone that says, well, I make sure I go to my local farmer and I get this and I know the conditions, um, then all of a sudden they're making an active choice to exploit animals in one particular way. And it's a part of their identity, much more so than someone that's just sort of casually going along with the stream of what the rest of society is doing. Mm -hmm. And 
I, you may experience this here, but in Colorado Springs, we have a really big um, homesteading community. So we get that a lot. So people who will come to my vegan cooking classes and are like, well, I have my own chickens and I raise my own eggs. And I'm thinking, I'm being a diplomat right now. You came into my class. How do I respond to this? Um, and it makes me think about um, what you just said, because I, I agree with your assessment on this. But I also think that, you know, we live in the real world and I think all of us would love to have ideals and they just don't happen. So when do we make our compromise and, and how do we turn it into a strategy when it's something that's not perfect? So one of the parts of this question was, and should we be sharing it on social media? Well, the whole should we, I hate the word should. Um, so do whatever you want. But, um, but if you wanted to turn this into something and if you feel like this was a step, but it was like barely a step and not where you wanted it to be, why not share it to say, wow, this is what progress could look like. This is what California just did, but here's why it's not perfect. Animals will still be died, will still be killed. People are, are consuming them. There's still going to be a level of suffering. So who's with me? What's the next step? Where do we go with this? So that is a way to sort of show a mini or macro victory, but in the context of it's nowhere near where we need to be. So is that is that for vegans or non-vegans? Like I, it, it, oh, yeah. Because is it for vegans to then say, this is really, like, we should be pushing this further thing, or is it for non-vegans to say, it's cool that you support this, but also support this other, like, support total abolition? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm speaking of it from a vegan perspective, and if I shared it, it wouldn't be for the vegans that follow me. It would be for my family and the non-vegans, so that, because if, if they're hearing about it on the news, I want I kind of want to frame it in a message I want them to get, which is, you've, we've heard about this, and this is where it is, but now this is where we need to go. I think that's, that's a good point, too, because I'm sure that this is being covered on the news, and I'm sure many times it's not being covered either. It's being covered either unfavorably or not maybe in the way that we want it to be covered. So maybe you do have a good point there that we need to be talking about it, if only to counteract the, like, the general media coverage of it, which might not be very vegan. Yeah. Andy, what do you think about that? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't personally think that I would share this because I think that it would still be sending the message to people that there's an okay way to exploit animals. And I feel like even even with my commentary, like my commentary would only be negative, I think. And I, I don't know, maybe that would be. Maybe that would be the way that I would use this as a form of advocacy um, because I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm glad that this passed than not. I think it's better that animals have a little more room than not. It's not like I'm against someone having a larger cage, um, but ultimately I feel like it's counterproductive. And so I would just have to use it to say, um, I don't know, like I don't want, ever want to, you know, crap on other activists, but, I, but yeah, when you talked about waste of time, I think how long did someone spend, how many people were out in the field gathering? Cause it was like, 600,000 signatures or some huge amount that I read about. And like, could that time have been better spent advocating for veganism instead? But we don't know what the conversations were when they got those signatures either. So how many of them were vegan activists that were knocking on doors to say, I'm here today because I care about animals. And this is what the world looks like right now with animal welfare. And uh, this is a step in the right direction. I mean, so were, were those 600,000 opportunities of some level of activism where someone who signed it yeah, maybe a lot of them did feel better about the steak they were going to go buy that night, but maybe somebody else started to think about it and was like, I never thought about the cages or the size of the cages. And is that one step toward their own transformation? I definitely think that that could be. That for many people, it probably was maybe the first time that they talked about an issue like that. But if even if you were, 
like a, a vegan activist going out to get those specific signatures, at some point you would have to like go back. You would have to say, okay, this is like, I want everyone in the world to go vegan, but it's okay if you just give me this signature right now. Like, it seems like at some point in that conversation, the person would have to say, but this is just okay. Like, this is okay. If you just do this thing and get this signature, that's okay. And, and is that then kind of giving them the okay of, because I, I feel like even we can, we can advocate for veganism. What is it? What is the expression that you always use, Andy? Shoot for the, shoot for the <laughs> moon, whatever, stars, something. I don't know. There's an expression, but you're not going to help me. Okay. never mind. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, so cliche. What's the, the, whatever, what, like aim for the moon, you might land in the stars something or like something that. like yeah, that. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. Or like you, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. <laughs> like, so, so I think, I think with the, with the, with general advocating, we can say, this is what, this is what we want and this is what I want. And, and if you're not able to get there right now, that that's okay. I think we can acknowledge that, but I think we can do that in a way that doesn't also say, but I'm okay with some eating of animals. It, yeah. It feels like at some point in that conversation as a canvasser, you have to either explicitly or implicitly let people know that you think it's okay for them to eat animals. And like, you know, none of this is about giving permission. Like people email us all the time. are like, is it okay if I do this? And we're like, we can talk about it, but we're not in the business of telling anybody what to do. Like, we're just going to try and suss out all the nuances and you decide. So um, I, I know I don't think it's all about prescribing actions to anybody. But I feel like as a vegan, if I was going out trying to click signatures for that, I would feel like I was selling out the animals because at some point in that conversation, I would have to say it's OK for you to eat an animal. Not necessarily. Why, why would you have to say that? Because that's like the nature of the thing that you are collecting a signature for. Like the thing you're collecting a signature for is explicitly saying it's okay for us to use animals for our own ends. And so even if you don't explicitly be like, I'm signing this so you can feel good about eating animals, I think that that's just a part of the nature of the mm -hmm. whole thing. Like it's not challenging the system. And maybe everything doesn't need to challenge the system. But if it doesn't, I'm wondering what true gains are made here if we've learned anything from prop two that these things are hard to enforce no one's really apparently making an effort to enforce them so is all of this effort for something that's really ultimately just going to garner more donations for large organizations that made a push for this well i'd love to hear a legal per i'd love someone like marianne sullivan to look at it because maybe there's something from a legislative standpoint that none of us know or understand that is when we make this first step, basically 61% of California said, wow, these beings shouldn't be allowed to be harmed for this period of time. And did that some set, set some precedent that we are unaware of that then takes it to the next level, which is to say, well, we're recognizing them as beings that can suffer and we reduced it. So now we need to go further. So maybe um, I'm just going to be an optimist and say that perhaps <laughs> there was this big, long game uh strategy that we don't know about that could be really great for the animals. And that is why I love and adore you, JL. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also going to try, that's a, that's a very good point. I'm also going to try to be optimistic and say another thing we might not be thinking about is like Andy mentioned with the, the, the uh, proposition that passed in Massachusetts where it was hurting other, like other states as well, or it was hitting other states as well. There might be some financial gain in, in terms of financially damaging those businesses that we also aren't thinking about too. Like maybe the point of this was to just give those, those animal agriculture companies like a, a big financial hit. Yeah. And so as far as something that I can pull out as a potential positive is that like knowing that this was actively opposed by the California egg farmers and the national pork producers councils, like 
well, if they didn't care, if they feel like it wasn't going to hurt their bottom line, then why would they oppose this? So like maybe that's something that we could read into it. And I know also a lot of people said, you know, even if this still doesn't tell people that you shouldn't eat animals at all, it potentially drives up the prices of these things, or at least that's the talking point of the egg farmers and the, the pork board there. Um, and that maybe that could influence people's decisions at the supermarket to purchase something else. Um, my concern with that is, of course, is that if we're driving up the cost of animal products, but not also working to drive down the cost of produce, like, mm. is there something classist or, or ableist in that? But um, I think that is like one thing that's a potential positive that could come out of this, even if you're choosing to feel negatively like I am about the overall implications of such a, a proposition being passed. Look at us trying to be positive. About this. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have anything else to say about this or should we go out? I think that's uh, I'm actually I'm curious. Let's do a show of hands. If you're in California, would you would you vote for this? About 5,000 people raised their hand <laughs> out of the 10,000 people that are here. Thank you. Cool. Well, um, any other thoughts on that one, JL? No. You're good. Okay, so now we're just going to open it up to everybody else. Uh, Helene, our wonderful Helene there, thank you for the introduction, uh, is going to go around with a microphone. So if you have a question, make sure it's actually a question, and we will, <laughs> we will call on you and try best to answer it. Do you guys have any advice for vegans living with mental illness such as depression where getting out of bed is a struggle let alone advocating and making daily vegan decisions i think it's tough uh for me personally to give advice on that having not like being in that specific position i, I deal with my own things in that regard but I feel like it might be a little disingenuous for me to try and give advice on that subject. There is a great social media page that I follow called Disabled Vegan that does talk a lot about that kind of stuff. So I think that like for me personally in the position that I'm in, the best thing I can do is direct people towards resources of folks that are living that experience and can offer solid advice in that regard. But I, I agree with that. I would say just in general though, and then I think that it might be something that might feel applicable is that I think, especially at events like this, where you're hearing from activists, you're getting a lot of information and that sometimes I think that there's sort of this assumption of what a vegan is expected to do around advocacy. And sometimes I think stepping back and and just saying that every time I make a food choice that's a vegan one, every time I make a choice to buy, you know, a shoe that wasn't made from an animal product, that was advocacy. And so you don't have to carry a sign and you don't have to go to somebody's door and you don't need to start a blog and and to give yourself a break and just, you know, take care of yourself. Um, and I'm not I'm not saying you're asking for yourself either. You could be asking broadly, but I think this applies to any one of us where you can look at someone and go, they're doing so much more than me. I should be doing more. Your decision every day to to live and eat vegan is a form of advocacy. And I think that we should all be really kind to ourselves and and manage our own expectations. Yeah. And I also think as a whole, we should we should make sure that we're not, you know, policing other people about what is or is not. Ad advocacy or activism as well and making sure just because your your specific type of activism doesn't look like someone else's it doesn't mean that theirs is any less effective than than what yours is hello hi um so you guys briefly touched on this for like a second but i've read that there's gonna be people are thinking about imposing a meat tax where if you bought meat it'd be more expensive do you agree with that do you think that would help with veganism, or do you think it would just be classist and not helpful at all? Mm. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I know this is something we've been wanting to address uh, and we've gotten a few emails about it. And I guess I haven't had enough time to like really think through and feel like I have like a solid opinion on that. But um, I think I will sort of divert back to the statement I said about if this Prop 12 does raise prices that I think it's sort of um, in it's important for us as advocates to also be working on increasing the accessibility and affordability of, you know, plant-based products for people to eat. And I think that if we're only working on raising the prices on um, vegan or non-vegan products, rather, uh, that like that is, that would be considered classist, I think. Yeah. I think that a lot of people only want to do, raise the meat prices and they don't want to do the work that's going to make it accessible that's going to make the other food accessible for more people. And that's yeah, definitely not good. Well, my response might not be what you expect, which is also that the context of that meat tax is that they're saying that in the same way that cigarettes can cause death or illness, meat can. So my concern with the meat tax is my concern with the health argument around veganism. Because um, a lot of times we in the community will see people making promises of go vegan and you're going to lose 30 pounds, go vegan and you're never going to get cancer, go vegan and all of your diseases are going to go away. Some people might experience incredible health as a result of changing from a standard American diet to eating a vegan or a plant-based diet, and many may not. And so um, to, to set up a meat tax give, kind of fuels that argument that it's it's the health choice, and I am always hoping that the strongest argument is from the animal's perspective of do no harm. So that's my concern around the meat tax. Hi, I have a question, um, and it may be off subject, but um, one of the struggles we're facing right now is um, when we're trying, if we have a health issue, when we're trying to go into the um, healthcare community and seek out help, uh, especially from our primary care physician, when you are having issues, first words out of their mouth are, you're not getting enough protein. So I don't know if you offer any suggestions on disciplines or specialties that we could look towards that would support um, my daughter in her choice and her vegan lifestyle that would help her with her health. Well, I, shall I do the disclaimer? None of us are health professionals. <laughs> and so we're not giving medical or health advice. Um, you know, I hear this all the time, so this could be a total lie. So don't, I, I don't know if it's true, but you know, people will say, doctors only get two hours of nutrition uh, education in, in med school. That could be a total myth. I have no idea. But I have a lot of doctor friends who are not vegan who do say that they don't spend a lot of time on nutrition. And so, um, so one thing is to potentially look for a healthcare provider that does either is vegan or plant-based and or makes clear on their website that they support that. Um, I'm going to take it away from the medical side for just a minute. And whenever I have someone who asks, says to me, um, how do you, where do you get your protein? My answer is always, how much do I need? Because <laughs> they don't know, right? And so um, there, there's not a protein deficiency in the United States of America or most of the world. Um, and so that's just an uninformed, that particular person is, is just uninformed. So instead of telling you what to do with your professional, your your doctors, I would recommend a couple of books. Um, one is Vegan for Life by Jack Norris and Jenny Messina. 
And it's a really excellent science-based book that doesn't overpromise, but just tells us what the research is saying right now and makes really solid recommendations. And I would consider handing it over to your doctor to say, I'd love to keep working with you. Why don't you take a look at this? And after you've read it, would love to hear your thoughts about how you'll care for my daughter. And if not, then you can, I mean, because hopefully you're in a position where you might be able to look for another doctor. I don't know if that's the case. Um, and then for your daughter, because, and this is seriously not a plug, but Jenny Messina wrote a book called Vegan for Her. I wrote the recipes, but I'm not a, um, but it's for women at any stage of their life. That's actually really solid too. So that might be helpful um, to give your doctor as well. I don't think I have anything to add to that. No, you nailed it. <laughs> so the amount of protein you need is like between like 44 and 46 grams per day for a female and like 56 grams for a male. But honestly, with all due respect, just do, do talk to your, you know, like do your own research because that's very, there are so many factors. I don't think anyone here should recommend any grams of protein to any of you. I think all of you should become empowered around your health and what you're doing and you, you do some research and you figure that out. And I think the point of you saying, come back with how many do I need is less about like test is, is more about sort of testing their knowledge to say, exactly. I don't know what I'm talking about. And like I find that's something advice I give to everybody in advocacy, which is ask questions all the time. Yeah. Even if you know the answer to a question, if someone says, where do you get your protein or, or something like, I think veganism is really expensive because of X, Y, Z and ask like, well, why do you think it's so expensive? Maybe they are in a position where it is like really expensive for them or they don't have access, but maybe they just have no idea why they think that and getting them to talk it out and realize that they don't know what they're talking about will come, will like, they're making that realization themselves as opposed to you saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Like we all have our talking points, we all have our things, three words out of someone's mouth with some objection about veganism, you already know that you're going to say like these three sentences. That's how you've had to respond a million times. And I think it's good to train ourselves to not do that and to not feel like we're these know-it-alls and to just ask them, you know, well, why do you feel that way? Or where did you hear that from? Or where did you get that figure from? Or how many grams should I have? Mm -hmm. And then you get people realizing that maybe they don't know why they're saying that thing to you. Hi. So um, whenever you're like, discussing like veganism with somebody and like the first thing you go to is like the animals and it's for the animals because they're sentient beings and they don't deserve to be harmed but if the person is like well you know I don't care or I think animals are here for us to use and it doesn't matter to me because like I'm superior or whatever do you feel like it's good to then go to like the health and environmental aspects of veganism or do you really try to like focus on like why it's for the animals you're looking at me okay <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you know we can use we can use the environment and the health arguments as kind of tools in our toolbox but I don't think we necessarily need to we don't we don't need to admit to them like oh, okay what you're saying is like I'm okay with that like I don't think you need to back down from your position on it and I think that most people that or many people that are vegan now may have held that same position that the, the person that you're talking to held at one point so i think just because in that one moment it doesn't seem like they're making any decisions or anything like that you might be planting a seed in their head or you might be making them think about something that they've never had to think about before and so i don't think just because right in that moment they're saying like every no like i completely disagree with everything you say doesn't mean that they may not agree with it at some point or it might not be changing the way that they're thinking about something so i don't think you know you don't need to you don't need to win that argument right in that moment to have made some sort of impact. So I would say 
focus less on trying to, not that this is what you're doing necessarily, but focus less on trying to win that specific argument and more so in just getting them to think about what they're doing and, and maybe challenging themselves about how, it, how their current thinking is. Yeah, I think that again sort of goes back to asking questions and saying, well, like, why do you feel that way? And you, you know, you can go down different avenues. Like, perhaps they have a dog or a cat at home, and asking them, you know, do you think it's okay to harm this dog or cat or whatever it is. But sort of like asking them questions, let them do most of the talking and let them kind of figure it out. And you're just sort of there, like dropping these breadcrumbs and then like leading them through the conversation in a way that you sort of want them to reach certain conclusions, but it'll be more powerful if they reach that conclusion. I mean, personally for me, honestly, if someone just says like straight up, like, I don't care, I feel like that's one of the most honest answers that someone could give to me mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, well, I can't get enough protein or some people can't afford it even though I can, so I'm not going to, or whatever it might be. But I think just like asking them and, and, you know, in any conversation about veganism, I think it's best if the person that's vegan is talking about 10% of the time. And so the more that you get them talking about it, I think you'll be able to get them to really explore like, well, why is it that you don't care? Like, why is it that you think animals are here for us? And, you know, maybe it's a religious argument. Maybe it's just, you know, totally a religious and they have some other reason for that. But there's like any number of conversation threads that you can follow from that, but get them to explore it. And then maybe you'll find some some way that you can sort of get in and plant that seed, as Paul was saying. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we feel like we need to know everything and it's OK to not know everything and that our activism should be rooted in authenticity um, of what we do know. Um, and so, you know, some people for them, the, the health argument is the argument that they know because they had a personal experience from it. Um, so I'm not opposed to that argument. I'm opposed to promises um, that we may or may not know about. But I think, um, you know, I I don't argue very much with people about it. And I actually don't feel like I spend a whole lot of time trying to make people be vegan. I just choose to live the way I live and teach cooking classes the way I do and hope that people will be see that it's e easier to do than they thought. Um, but I'm thinking of someone that I met who, who when I first met her, people always seem to need to tell you once you tell them what you do, like if you're, you write vegan cookbooks or whatever, and they're like, oh, yeah, I love chicken. I'm like, thanks. Okay, <laughs> cool. Um, I like eyeshadow, relevant, because um, so uh, but this one person who did that, but, but I don't do that. So I just say, oh. And then I just go on because <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to do with that. But um, but but that person I continued to have conversations with. And now I cook for her. I cook vegan for her every week. She's not vegan now, but she's one of my clients. But because I, I didn't say, oh, my God, you eat chicken. I can't believe you just said that to me. I just said, oh, and then I just went on to continue to talk about probably kale or something. But um, and so I think, you know, again, just like approaching it from your place of authenticity and not I, I don't feel like I need to make people see my way. And, and I agree. Like if someone just said, you know, what, I really don't care about animals. I don't care if they have any pain. I love them. I'm like, that's time I'm not going to waste. I'm just going to go to the next person who's like, you know, I've been trying to eat healthier. I'm like, oh, okay, come over here. That was vegan fishing. Get that? That was her person <laughs> on the end. Anyway, um, okay, so I'm done. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you touched on something interesting, which is like you're not trying to have arguments. And I feel like 
none of us should be trying to have arguments. Yeah. Like it's, and that's why I say like, ask questions, have a conversation, come at it from a place of empathy. And if someone is being, trying to be argumentative, I know you weren't necessarily saying I'm getting all these arguments with people, <laughs> but like if someone is argumentative, it's okay to pick and choose your battles. And I think that's a part of prolonging our ability to be effective activists is knowing when someone's just committed to misunderstanding you and not understanding the issue. It's okay to, to sort of just back away from that one and leave them with something to think about. But yeah, like if we think about it as like winning arguments that I feel like that sets us up to fail because you could even win an argument, you know, in, in every regard, we pretty much have facts and empathy and compassion on our side, but you knock someone out with, with all these like truth bombs and you're like, I got that sucker. <laughs> and then like the next day they're like, oh, that person was a real jerk. And I just like, they're even more like steeled in their conviction to exploit animals. So um, not that you're necessarily saying that, but I think that's sort of like an overall way to look at things is have conversations, but don't have arguments and come at it from that angle. So we have time for one more question. It's got to be Bearded Vegan first. shirt. Sure I mean, come yeah. on. Front row, front and center. Yeah. That, that shirt, there's two of those made, and I made one <laughs> I made one on this website that you can make T-shirts, and we accidentally put that link public, and that's the other one before I realized that that was public and took it down. So rare, rare merch. Very lucky to have it. <laughs> so my question, and I hope it's not too vague, but it's, what is your thought process around uh, answering sort of gray questions? And I really have kind of two examples. One is, so I've been approached sort of on the street where someone is in need of a meal and I'm willing to buy that meal for them and take them wherever is closest, ha pick out whatever you want to have. I don't feel like I'm not, the purpose of that is not dictating what you're going to eat. I'm just trying to help this person have a meal. Um, so then it, it feels sort of awkward to know I'm purchasing an animal for them to eat. But at the same time, the purpose of that is just to help them have a meal. The other question, and this is more recent for me, is so I have a companion animal. I know that's a whole other discussion. But anyway, she's a dachshund, and she's about 15 years old. And she has been vegan her whole life. But recently, she's had a lot of age-related uh, problems. And because of that, she's in a little bit of pain, a little bit of anxiety. And so feeding her has become a problem. And so we've tried everything we can do. So we put nutritional yeast flakes. That worked for a long time. Then we did canned pumpkin. That worked for a long time. Then we did like powdered peanut butter. That worked for a long time. But it's progressed now where she really does not want to eat very much. And we really have exhausted all options. And so I found myself at the store this weekend. And I spent 30 minutes just like looking at all the canned dog food. I knew that was my only option at that point, but um, it was, I felt so guilty buying it, but at the same time, so it's the question around that is, well, do I help this one animal? It's hurting all of these other animals, but I don't really know what my choices are. So just kind of your thought process around answering these kind of gray questions around veganism in that regard. But I think the first thing I want to say about the, like the dog thing is that you know, it's like we're, you, you are, I don't, I don't uh, personally have a companion animal, but you know, we're in this, like that, the, the dog food industry is its own industry that is highly non-vegan as it is. And, and I feel like it's just, it's hard to, not that I know personally, but it's hard to raise a vegan dog because the industry is so non-vegan and because you're being put in this very specific situation where you're trying to figure out all the options, but you're not necessarily being able to find one that's like aligning with the veganism thing. So I think just maybe, maybe you'll disagree with me, but not 
not being so hard on yourself about that one specific thing because you're trying to do something vegan in this very non-vegan industry that's already been created. So that, that was my first thought. I have companion animals. Um, this is going to be recorded. <laughs> it is being recorded. Um, and so that's why I always say that there's no vegan card because I just don't want you to take mine away. Um, I have a cat. I chose to have a cat in my house. And cats eat a certain way. And it's not vegan. And that was my obligation and my choice to care for this animal, hopefully for many, many years. Um, and I have a puppy. And I have a vegan veterinarian who pleaded with me to please feed the puppy the way he's prescribing right now. And when he's one year old, then we'll explore the other options, which means it's a, a, life, a lifespan. For 15 years, you have had a dog in your home. And you've worked really hard to give that dog an amazing life. And you fed it a vegan diet. That was 15 years that you did not participate in that. And if you need to do something for your dog to have a sweet next few years, be kind to yourself. Yeah, I can tell that you're feeling very emotional about this, as I think anyone would. And I think that's the only thing I could echo is be kind. And as far as like our, our thought process, like, again, we can't tell anybody what to do. And it's just about sort of like searching within yourself and thinking, you know, what do I think is the best thing to do right here and not worrying necessarily about what the vegan police are going to think about it. Um, maybe you do come to some hard, you know, conclusions there about what you have to do. But like, ultimately, I feel like it's, it's about realizing as Polly, you're saying we, we are living in a very non-vegan world and that there are some concessions that we have to make sometimes. And sometimes we don't have to make those. And sometimes we feel like we have to make a hard decision not to make that concession, but sometimes we do. And to not feel like you're not vegan anymore, or you're not a compassionate person and understand that we all have to make tough decisions in our lives where things, maybe there isn't one situation where we feel great about either outcome. And we just sort of have to go ahead and make that decision for the best, you know, of the, the ones we care about, which includes our companion animals or includes people that are living on the street and mm -hmm. need a meal. Um, I don't think it's ever wrong to, to make a compassionate action and how I would, you know, how I would act in your shoes in those situations. It's like, I don't entirely know cause I'm not in it, but also how I would act is I think irrelevant. Like you just sort of have to do what feels right to you in that regard. So, um, don't beat yourself up if you feel like you have to make some sort of concession. All right. All right. So that brings us to the end of the podcast. So we talked a lot about Proposition 12, Paul. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. We did not talk about Proposition 13. What's that? That was to get the entire audience in front of us to say the following seven words. We are the Beaver Vegans, signing off. Awesome. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming. <laughs> thank you. And thank you to JL. Stick around for the food demo at three. Are we on? Mine's on. Check, check. Ooh, I feel, All like, right. I feel like Celine Dion. <laughs> That's a joke that no one listening to the podcast at home will get. <laughs> All right, where am I? Here we are. What's up, Beardos?